I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God this morning to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. And uh, we'll just read verses 1 through 8 this morning and kind of keep our eye out for the rest of the scope and the sweep of this psalm. But we'll read the first eight verses. So will you stand with me now out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? Psalm 78. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from our children. But tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not Faithful to God. Several years ago, a, a prominent American journalist wrote a book entitled The Greatest Generation. And the Greatest Generation was written about that generation which endured the Great Depression. It was that group of people who were born in the first couple of decades of the 20th century and have accomplished great things. They are the ones who built the infrastructure of modern America, the bridges and the highways and the dams and the iconic sites which we might think of this morning, the Golden Gate Bridge and Hoover Dam and other things. They were also the people who fought World War II, who beat down the Nazis in Imperial Japan. The great generation was the generation of great accomplishments. And so this journalist wrote this book about this very unique people. The purpose of the book, however, was not to chronicle what they accomplished. The point of the book and the aim of the book was to chronicle the values which enabled them to make great accomplishments. It was designed to think through and to showcase the grit and the determination the work ethic, the love of country and duty and family and value that stood behind the things that they did. The point of it was to say to a modern audience that unless you have deep-seated values, unless your convictions have been forged in the furnace of trial and difficulty, there's no way to accomplish great things. You see, and the impetus for this book was to address a 21st century audience and a whole generation of people who had grown up 
who knew little or next to nothing about all that had come before them. And the concern was it was about to be squandered because there was a lack of understanding, not just about history, but about values. You see, the aim of the book was to motivate. The aim of the book was to instruct. The aim of the book was to inspire. The aim of the book was to reach to the past, to speak to the present, in order to build the future. It seems to me every generation stands right there on that threshold. Every single generation stands on the threshold of two temporal horizons, the past and the future. And the job of every single generation is to look to the past, to teach in the present with an eye to the future. And as we think about that idea of straddling these temporal horizons and retrieving lessons to pass them on, not only to integrate them into our life now, but to pass them on to the future, we realize that this is an idea that Scripture is alive with. And one of those texts is ours this morning, Psalm 78, where we see the principle exemplified and expounded. You see here, the psalmist opens up in verse 1 with an appeal to listen and to incline, and from there begins to unfold. And the topic and the substance of the exposition is really history. You see, the psalmist reaches to the past to teach about today so that those who are hearing the message now would realize that their duty isn't just to themselves and to their children, but to think in terms of God's timeline and God's perspective, which isn't just this generation or the next generation, but unto a thousand generations. And it calls upon us to see how today we are the link in that grand chain link of covenant where God would not just promise to one, but to a thousand in order to bring his will to pass for his church. And the point of our text then this morning is that God uses teaching to preserve and to promote his church. And not just teaching in general, but parental teaching. God uses parental teaching as one generation teaches the next in order that he may preserve and keep his church. And there's three things that I want us to see this morning as we think about this text, the call to teach, the message taught, and the aim of instruction. We think, first of all, the call to teach. We can just spend a little bit of time here. I think the real marrow of our text comes in the next couple of points, but I do think it's important for us to hear this call to teach. And we see that call to teach, first of all, in the prophetic announcement here in verses 1 and 2 and even on into 3 where the psalmist comes to the people of God and says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction, incline your ears to the very words of my mouth. He uses two very powerful and strong verbs here, listen and incline. And I think the second verb draws out really the force and strength of the first because both of them are not really so much about hearing as much as hearing and responding. The point of what the psalmist is doing here, as he sort of presents himself as a national father figure, fulfilling the covenantal duty and mandate of the father to transmit the lessons of God's word to the current generation so they'll be taught to the next, he stands here almost in a prophetic strength with prophetic authority saying to 
the people of God throughout the generations, it's time to hear. It's time to listen. It's time to respond. And the message here, which he calls instruction, is termed a parable. And then secondly, in the second part of verse 2, dark sayings of old. And it feels a little ironic this morning to think that we are called to listen and to incline our ear and to understand things which we possibly can't understand. But really what the psalmist is doing is expounding history because even though these terms indicate something that is mysterious and difficult to understand, I think a better way to understand what the psalmist is saying because what he does is present an overview of history is he has reflected upon the narratives of Scripture. He has reflected upon Old Testament revelation. He has reflected upon the deeds of God and the ways of the people of God. And what he does is he draws out insights and lessons and principles for the people of God to consider in order that they may transit, transmit to a, a new generation. So it's historical instruction. And I, I love the way he puts it here in verse 3. He says he's going to teach the things we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. You see, he puts himself in the shoes, as, you, as it were, of the people of God, the people he's addressing. He said, I'm identifying myself with you. I'm one of you. He says, it's our fathers. This is the things that we were told. He places himself within a culture of people who learned their lessons about life as their fathers and their grandfathers gathered with them around the family dinner table and talked about the things that they valued and about God and about Christ and about the faith. So he identifies himself with the people of God. He says, the message and the lesson that I'm going to tell you is the one that you learned on your mama's knee. It's not new. It's not novel. That reminds us this morning some of the most important lessons we need to hear and to have reinforced in our thinking are not new things, but the good old-fashioned things that we've already been taught and that we already know. And so he says here, he is going to unfold history, history that all of them have learned themselves as it was passed down in the family way. He says, I won't conceal it. I'm going to tell it. But I want you to see something else in here that lends to the message and reinforces it in terms of the overall thought of the text and why it's important for us to listen and to take to heart. And I wonder if you caught it as we read through this psalm portion. He says in verse 4, we will not conceal them from their children. Their children. See, he says here, I'm presenting myself as a sort of national father figure, teaching you as my children, and you're to do the same thing. But one of the things he says here is he does not say in verse 4, we will not conceal them from our children. He says we will not conceal them from their children. And so what does that mean? It means he's looking back to verse 3 and to the fathers. He's looking back to the grandparents and the great-grandparents and the grandparents before them. And he calls the, the, the present and current generation of children not our children, but their children. 
because he's speaking in a covenantal way to the covenant people of God. In a sense, he's saying, if you have faith this morning, go look at your family tree. If you have faith this morning, go look at your family tree. And if this morning you sit here and you can see I have faith and, and my dad had faith and my grandparents behind, behind them had faith, and then one thing you can deduce and conclude this morning is that God has been preparing for your spiritual experience for generations. And the very spiritual experience which you have isn't uniquely yours. It's been one that has been prepared for by God in the normal way of the covenant, which is that God puts faith in the heart of the Father who passes it on to the children so that it will extend to the third and fourth generation. But if that's not you this morning, maybe you're the first one this morning that has faith. Maybe you look back in your family tree and you can't find anybody that believed. How much more responsible are you this morning to hear the sobering message that it's your job to pick up the torch of the covenant and to make double sure that it's not just being transmitted to you and to your children, but to your children's children and their children, the children's after that. What an exciting and exhilarating thought this morning. If you are the first in the line of faith in your family, that you have this awesome opportunity to raise up a covenant line that endures. You have something that matters. And that means that the cultivation of faith today before the Lord and your walk before Christ is significant because it's not just going to impact you. It can impact generation after generation. You see, that's what he's speaking about here. He has a lesson that comes from the past that has tremendous significance for the future. But if we don't internalize that message today, there'll be nothing for the future. And so he is speaking here to the people of God about covenantal duty. You might say this morning, well, what basis or authority does he have for speaking this way? What basis or authority do we have for thinking that way? And the answer is the Bible. Notice here, he has made his determination in verse 4, I will not conceal them, but tell them, to the next generation. I want you to notice the very first word of verse 5. What is it? It's for. That indicates to us that the preacher here in this chapter is given the basis for why he perceives that he has the authority to not conceal but to tell, and not just him, but along with him, every single parent that has covenant children. And the reason... He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. You see, the authority rests in the covenantal mandate of Scripture. And we remember where that record begins. Huh? It begins back with Abraham in Genesis 18, 19, where we read, not only of the duty, but of the promise of covenantal parental instruction of their children. God says there about Abraham, I have chosen him so that 
he will command his children, his household, after him. See that? Not just the people who are here today, but those who will come after him. He says, I have chosen him so that he will teach them the way of the covenant, uh, doing righteousness and justice. There is the duty. That's what is referred to in principle here. It says he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded the fathers. The Abrahamic policy is right here. God says, I have chosen him so that he will teach. That's the duty. But notice now. The promise is bound up in those words so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. You see, God connected promise to duty. That so that speaks of what God said he would do for him. And you'll remember what God said he would do for, for Abraham. Uh, he would make him a great nation. He would give them descendants that were as numerous as the stars in the heaven, the sand on the seashore. He would give them a great land of promise that would be uh, for, uh, for, for them unto a thousand generations. And as you read that and view the New Testament, the Apostle Paul himself says that when God was speaking about those promises, he was speaking of spiritual things. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes so far as to say that God preached the gospel before him to Abraham in those promises. And so the point of it is to say this, that, that God says, I have chosen him so that when he catechizes and trains and teaches his household, he will use that as the means to bring upon him and his family and his family after him all of the rich gospel promises which God made. It's the means. The means God has used to bless your house and your children's house and your grandchildren's house and your great-grandchildren's house is simple. It's to teach them the way of the Lord. And you know that Abrahamic policy gets picked up in the law. Deuteronomy has a series of texts and just listen to them which take that policy and turn it into a law. That's what's meant here when it says a testimony in verse 5 and a law. And then says it was commanded. Listen to these texts. Deuteronomy 4.9 Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These words I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals to your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Notice the expansiveness and the persistence 
of the duty. You shall teach your sons and grandsons. You shall talk to your children when you sit down, when you rise up, when you walk along the way, when you lie down. You are to inscribe these things on the very doorposts of your house and the gates of your property. God is serious about perpetuating his covenant. And the way he calls and commands and the means he has forged for that is instruction. The parents teach the children, so the children teach the grandchildren, so the grandchildren teach the great-grandchildren. That's God's way of perpetuating faith and covenant in the church under a thousand generations. And it's not just an Old Testament idea. It's in the new as well. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It's not Old Testament. The Abrahamic policy is for us today. Fathers, parents, mothers, train up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now notice the reason for it right here. Verse 6, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. Key in on that word that because it's signaling the purpose of the command. The purpose of the command that the father should teach their children is that the generation to come might know. And I love how this uh, is expanded upon because the psalmist wants to make double sure that the sites are trained properly, not just upon the children, but upon the children's 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 children. Because as he says here, even the ones not yet born, that they in turn may arise and tell them to their children. It's as if we're all a part of a link of this grand covenant chain. The past is connected to the present. The present is connected to the future. So that the future is connected to the past. Purpose of the teaching is to make sure that yesterday's truth is alive today and that's propagated unto tomorrow. We always teach with an eye to the future. And so the psalmist here is calling upon the people of God to hear. To hear not just the lesson that he is going to lay before him, but the duty. The duty to keep the eye not just on the first generation, or the second generation, or the third generation, or the fourth generation, but unto a thousand generations. Before we move on to our second point, burrow our way into the, to the meat and the marrow of the message here this morning, it, it pays to think about a couple of things that emerge here. And one of them, which we cannot miss here, is that the church is forged under promise. The church is a body forged under promise. And we can see that very easily in the way God talks to Abraham. For instance, in Genesis chapter 17, he says that he will be a God unto him, and not just unto him, but to his children, and to his children after that, to his children's children. And that same idea is picked up in the law in Deuteronomy 7, 9, where 
Moses says, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is a faithful God. He keeps covenant and loving kindness to a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. The church is a body forged under promise and the means that God uses to preserve and to propagate his people is teaching, parental teaching, catechizing, training, bringing children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It has a particular relevance to us this morning as we think about infant baptism and its call to duty. In a moment here, we're going to see Luke and Tawny bring forward baby Micah, and they're going to take vows in a sense. Uh, Luke and Tawny, you're going to take vows this morning that are very relevant to your house today. The vows you're about to take are very relevant to, to Micah today. But, but one of the things here that we're to notice in view of the scope of the instruction of Psalm 78 here is in a sense the vows that you are taking today are about ensuring the blessing upon Micah's house and then after that from Micah's house to his children's house and from the great-grandchildren's house to their house. God has a great plan for your family. Today it may not look like it, but that's what faith does. It looks not upon the present, it looks upon the promise. And so it's a, it's a call to take seriously. And what a tragic thing it is when parents don't. I heard a woman just the other day talk about her grown-up children saying, I don't know them. I don't know how they got to be this way. Their views have so radically changed, it's as if I share nothing in common with them. What an awful thing to say about your children. But what's more, what a painful thing to experience. All those nights, a mother is kept awake, caring for the little babies, nurturing them, blessing them, feeding them, changing them walking them to school, helping them with their homework, taking them to the ball fields, being concerned about them every single time they step out the door and go play in the street with their friends, only to have the crushing, the heartbreaking experience of grown children who she shares absolutely nothing in common with. We don't know all the circumstances that surround that, but one reason why that happens is a failure to teach, a failure to keep your vows. Parents, I implore you this morning to think upon your vows. Each and every one of you who has presented a child for infant baptism has made a promise before God that you will teach your children and train them in the way of the Lord which means you are to pray for them, you are to teach them, you are to catechize them, you are to speak to them of the things of Jesus Christ. And you have the greatest of motivations to do that, not simply the authority and power of the law, but the wonder of God's promise who says, I have appointed these things so that I may bring upon your house everything I have spoken. You see, God this morning would motivate you, Luke and Tawny, and everyone who's ever taken a vow to train up their children. A great promise. 
If you don't have children this morning and you think you're going to have some in the future, listen to it. You need to be aware you stand under the authority of God's law. And what God's law says is it was established as a testimony in Jacob. He commanded the fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generations to come might know. What is it you're to teach your children? And even if you don't have children to teach this morning, I want you to think about the great message which God would have us teach, the great message God would have us to confess as a church, the great message which cultivates faith in our hearts day after day after day. And there's three aspects to this message taught. You can see it outlined in seed form here in verse 4 as the psalmist tells us exactly what it is he won't conceal, but that he will tell. It says here, he will tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and the wondrous works which he has done. That's your outline of the historical lesson. If you were to read the rest of this text, that's what you would see scattered, smooshed all throughout the sense. Um, Psalm 78 is like a sermon that a pastor gave without being prepared in some ways. There's nothing wrong with it. It's as if his heart is just pouring out as he, as he ranges over a whole series of historical events and situations. Almost all of them are key redemptive historical events. But one of the things that you begin to see as he mixes historical lessons and he draws out his principles as he's speaking about these things, God's wonders, God's wrath, and God's grace. And so we begin here with wonders. And we see that at the uh, end of verse 4. His wondrous works. And that word there for wonders. Is, is a word that the Old Testament uses quite regularly. To speak of God's miracles. To speak of the miraculous. To speak of things that are awesome and surprising. Things which are simply beyond the scope of nature. Or of human hands. And we know that these are the things that God wants us to teach because the text tells us. The works, he says, are to be taught to the children that they will understand them. They will know them. And the Bible's alive with this concept. One of my favorite passages, and we'll get to some here in our text, but one of my favorite passages which illustrates the principle and the duty and God's concern and care for the proclamation of his wonders is, is Joshua 4. In Joshua 4, the people of God have, have just crossed the Jordan River. And uh, you remember it was done miraculously that God parted uh, the uh, floodwaters of the Jordan such that when the priest stepped in the water, that the waters raised up as a heap like in the, the dividing of the Red Sea and the people of God crossed over on dry ground. And when all of the hundreds of thousands of millions of Israelites with all of their cattle and sheep and goats and stuff, when all the U-Hauls crossed the river, God said, what I want you to do is take 12 strong men from each tribe, and you go out there and you retrieve a giant rock where the priest's feet are standing, and you put it over here on the shoreline, and you build it up as a giant mound. Because God says it'll be a sign so that when your children ask later, what do these stones mean? 
you say to them, the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. These stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. You see, God had designed a memorial of a, of a massive mountain of stones so that when the people of God walked by, it would be built in for catechizing. The parent didn't have to do anything because it was so obscure and so awesome and so obvious that the children in the back seat would say, Dad, what are those stones doing out there? And the father was to say, glad you asked that question. Those signs, those stones are a sign of the wonders of the Lord. You see, one of the lessons that the psalmist wanted to impress upon the people of his age so that they would in turn impress it upon the next age and the following age and the age yet not born, it was a message about the wonders of the Lord. And so as you look through our text here, you can see that again and again, he appeals to the wonders. How about verse 11? They forgot his deeds and his miracles, which he had shown them. He brought, he wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the water stand up like a heap. There's one of your wonders. The parting of the Red Sea. Then he reaches for another wonder of the Lord. That's in verse 14, where uh, he's grasping hold of the, the narrative and numbers that God led the encamped people in the wilderness by day with a giant cloud and at night by this huge pillar of fire. Another episode that he reaches for is that time when the people of God came to Moses and complained. And they said that God had led them through this Red Sea crossing and he was leading them day by day by this massive cloud and, and by night this gigantic pillar of fire. And God had done all of that only to bring them out there so their carcasses would rot in the desert. And they said, we're thirsty. And God said to Abraham, you go stand on, or to Moses, and you go stand on that rock and you strike it. In the midst of the wilderness, the river emerged. Enough to water all of the millions of people with all of the millions of their flocks. God brought forth water in the midst of the desert. It was a wonder. There's another wonder here that's recorded as you continue to go down in our text. You see it is the wonder of the provision of quail in the middle of, of the wilderness. They were starving. And uh, you see that beginning at verse 23. In our text, uh, God whipped up a giant a wind and he brought forth a, such a massive covey of quail that Numbers 11 tells us that um, the, the amount of quail that descended upon the camp was three foot deep. That's a lot of quail. That's just a, a, just a little bit of the spectrum of the wonders here that the psalmist refers to. And one of the things here that I think the psalmist is attempting to key in on here is that the substance of the message that we teach to our children is not just about the doctrines, it is about the power of God. You see, when you're thinking about the wonders of God and the miracles of God, there are pointers and signs to the power of God. And one of the things that God would have us 
impress upon our own minds and hearts and upon the minds and hearts of our children and our grandchildren is that nothing is too hard for God. That's a perspective of faith. Nothing is too hard for God. And one place we learn that is in his wonders. If God can cause the waters of the Red Sea to stand up as in heat, if God can bring forth water out of a rock in the midst of the desert, if God can raise that dead body of Jesus after three days, there's nothing that's too hard for God. We need to think upon that. We are a church that is known for its doctrine, for its love of doctrine, for its appreciation for the fine points of doctrine, for dotting the I's of doctrine and crossing the T's of doctrine. But we dare never separate the doctrines from God and from the almightiness of His power. You see, because if we are not impressed with the power of God and the wondrous works of God, we will never strive for great things or pray for great things. Because only great things can be accomplished by God, and faith must be nourished by dwelling upon the power of God and His wonders. Let's make sure we're speaking of the wonders of God. The second aspect of the message is the wrath of God. And I take that from this word strength here in verse 4. Tell to the generations that come the praise of the Lord and his strength. I believe that strength here is a summary term put for the wrath of God. And I'll just show you a couple of places in our text where we see this wrath of God. So if your Bible's open, we uh, just mentioned the water that came forth uh, from the rock. And then uh, you see here, verse 20, Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams were overflowing. And here's what the people said. Uh, can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? You see, they've just witnessed um, a miracle that was so enormous in its breadth that they couldn't wrap their minds around it. It was so self-evidently a marvel and a work of God's power. And it was miraculous that they could barely conceive of it. And yet it's as if in the very next breath they said, well, what else can you do? Sure, you can bring forth water in a desert, but you uh, can you bring us some meat? I want you to look at what the text says after that in verse 21. Therefore the Lord heard, and he was full of wrath, and a fire kindled against Jacob, and anger mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God. You see, the purpose of the miraculous was not to dazzle. It was not to be something like a magician's trick where you sit there and sort of giggle to yourself. The point of the display of the miraculous and the power of God is to lead to faith. It's to say, well, if God can do that, he can do anything. 
And yet here, the text notes that the people of God barely walk away with um, their canteen full of water in the midst of the desert. Then they say, but what's next? You see, instead of cultivating faith in their hearts based upon the work of God, they spurned his grace. Look at another example. We just talked about the quail. I want to show you what happened. As you see here in verse uh, uh, 28, uh, he let them fail in the, fall in the midst of their camp round about their dwelling. So they ate and they were well filled in their desire he gave to them. But check this out now in verse 30. Before they satisfied their desire, while their food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. And he killed some of the stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. You see, um, they challenged God to not just bring forth water, but meat. And God brought forth such a abundance of meat that they sat there and they ate like gluttons. They didn't eat in faith. They didn't eat in gratitude. They didn't eat with thanksgiving. And so the text says, while the flesh of the quail meat was in their mouth, God struck them down because they did not receive it with thanks. But I want you to notice what the text says after that because it ties this together. Verse 32 says after that, in spite of all this, they still sinned. They did not believe in wonderful his wonderful works. Now look at verse 33. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. I want you to notice this morning, people of God, what happens to those who just gorge on God's mercies and benefits, and grace, and providences, and then don't return thanks. They had everything that they needed. They were fully satisfied. The text itself says it. And yet, they did not believe. They did not give thanks. And so what does God do to a people who receive his mercies and the overflow of his goodness, and they don't so much as even pause to say, thank you. What does God do? Well, he pours out his affliction. He pours out his affliction on an ungrateful people. And I want you to notice the nature of that affliction here because it's quite striking. He brought their days to an end in futility. Emptiness. What if God gives you everything you ever wanted in life? What if you could sit down and write down on a piece of paper everything that you wanted, and then you woke up and you find that God had given it? That's the sense here. They had gotten everything that they wanted. And yet, instead of giving thanks to God, instead of cultivating faith, they simply gorge themselves 
The affliction that God will send upon an ungrateful person is emptiness. In the midst of your abundance, you will never know satisfaction. That's what it says. This is the affliction of God to make your abundance a gnawing, bottomless emptiness. To make you feel meaningless. People of God, if you have drunk deeply at the well of grace, it calls for thankfulness. If the Lord's mercies have been to you and poured out upon you, you need to say thank you. Otherwise, the warning here of the psalmist is God will send affliction to either turn you back to him or in your days with a hopelessness of life's vanity. That's a serious message. He won't be mocked. God will be glorified for his mercies. That brings us to the last message that is to be proclaimed here. And it's God's mercy. I see that in verse 4 at the outset of the phrase here. Tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. The praises of the Lord. Maybe we could see something that will really make us sit up and take note of the praises of the Lord this morning, huh? How about looking in your Bible to verse 36? But they deceived him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. This is pretty ugly. The um, preacher here seems to have been fired up. He's in full sermon mode, okay? So he doesn't give you all the details of the context, but I have a sneaky suspicion given the flow of the text that he's situated somewhere in the era of the judges. You may remember from our teaching on the judges that it was an era of history in which there was no king in Israel, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so one generation after the next turned away from God and turned to the Baal, and the result was that the Philistines or one of the local enemies of Israel would come in and subjugate them and subdue them, and then the people of God would be carried uh, into a captivity and enslaved, and then eventually after a season of time, they would sigh and groan so loudly before the Lord that he would raise up a judge who would come and deliver them from their enemies. And then they would say, Lord, we are going to give our whole soul to you only for the next generation to repeat the same as the former. To turn away from the Lord and to the Baals. And I think that's a summary line of the history of the melody line of the judges. They deceived him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. Their heart was not steadfast towards him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Ugly. But I said this point is about mercy, not wrath. So look at your text. Verse 38, you can almost read this without weeping. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. That's the context of the administration of divine mercy. Deceitful 
and lying and stubborn and wayward in their hearts and not steadfast. And yet the text says, what did God do? And I love the force here of our translation. But he, in contrast to all of their waywardness and stubbornness and rebellion, in spite of their lying and their deception and the fickleness of their heart, but he, not because of them, but what? Because he is compassionate. He forgave them. This is the mercy of God. This is the patience of God. This is the grace of God. He forgave their iniquity. But notice what's added to that. He did not destroy them. He restrained his anger. He did not arouse his wrath, but he remembered they were but flesh. The language reminds us of that great Old Testament gospel psalm, Psalm 103, which expounds upon the overflow of God's mercies that are so abundant they can't be counted. But what I regard as the heart of the psalm the verse that grips me like no other, perhaps, in the rest of the Psalter, he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. You know what precedes that verse? As a father has compassion on his children, so our father has compassion upon those who fear him. And he removes our iniquities as far as the east is from the west because he knows our frame. That's the same message that the psalmist is speaking of here. Because God remembers your dusty frame. He being compassionate, removes our sin and places them from us as far as the east is from the west. That's the mercy of the Lord. That's precisely what the psalmist wanted to raise up here and amplify. Tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. Will you teach your children? What do you teach yourself? You hold up the mercy of God. You hold up the grace of Christ. You teach your children the joy of the gospel. You point them to the cross. You make much of the blood. You train your children to be confident in the love of God the Father. You see, that is absolutely essential and it's absolutely necessary in order to perpetuate the faith from one generation to the next because God did not call us to train up people to be religious. You can teach all the doctrine you can want and you can demand all the conformity to a whole set of legalistic principles and rules and at the end of the day, if Christ isn't in the message, all you have is a religious child. And nothing is more damaging than to train your children to be religious. Because just being religious is Christless. And if you teach 
your children to be Christless, they'll never share your faith. They will never share your faith because there's no hope and there's no joy and there's no future in a Christless religion. The psalmist implores the people of God to speak and to teach the mercies of God. Why? Because there's a couple of things and our time has evaporated because this preacher got too windy. But I'll just suggest a couple of things here. Uh, verse 6 and 7, I want you to notice the connection here. The first thing here, the aim of instruction is covenant memory. Covenant memory. The foundation of memory is in verse 6. That, I already told you that that looks back to verse 5. It explains the purpose of why he commanded the fathers to teach their children. That the generation to come might know. So the purpose of our instruction is to uh, pass on knowledge. But here's the key. It is to teach in such a way that we seek a knowledge which bears fruit. And I take that from the connection of ideas between verse, and six, uh, verse 6 and 7 here. Because he talks about the generation might know, and then verse 7, that. Now we're drawing out the purpose of the knowing, okay? And the purpose of the knowing is that they should put their confidence in God, not forget the works, but keep his commandments. You see, the purpose of it all is not just to learn the doctrines. The purpose of it all is that I learn faith. I learn this uh, knowledge and this doctrine in such a way that my heart looks to God and my confidence rests in him. You see, what good is it to know the doctrine of providence and its essential elements that it is about preservation and governance and concurrence unless that same knowledge of the doctrine of providence leads me to be thankful in prosperity and patient in adversity and confident in God towards the future. It's nothing, there's no use in teaching uh, people to manipulate religious language and to recite it if it's not leading them to cultivate a heart of faith and trust in the Lord. And I want you to notice the danger of just knowing. Look at verse 9. The preacher has set up what he's about to do, and now he gets into the historical narrative. And he starts with the sons of Ephraim, some incident that no one knows really when this took place. But, but the, the summary he draws from it, the lesson was this. They were archers equipped with bows, and they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God, but refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds. So whatever the incident is referring to, it is a notorious act of rebellion. And the overflow and the result of it is they were crushed in the day of battle. But I want you to notice the reason they forgot. Well, my memory is slipping a bit. That's just natural life. But that's not the forgetting that he speaks of here. The verb for forget here is to fail to see the significance. It's not that they didn't know. It's not that they didn't parrot all the right things. The issue was they failed to live 
out their faith. That's what it was. The aim of teaching is to not just impart knowledge, is to lead our children to put their confidence in God. Well, the, the time has gone just too fast, but just look at the rest. I mean, there's a phrase in here that I just really would love to expound upon. It's uh, not be like their fathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, whose spirit was not faithful in God. If you flip those inside out and you take the negatives, you turn them to positive, what you're supposed to do, it tells you exactly the aim of teaching. It's that we would be steadfast in heart. A spirit of devotion to God. That's where Christian teaching is to aim. To train our children devotion to the Lord. So people of God, speak to your children of his wonders. How God is a glorious and gracious redeemer in Jesus Christ who was raised up from the dead in order that we may have life. And we do that pointing to the mercies of God. Knowing that nothing is too hard for him and persuaded of that great and glorious truth. We take up our humble little place in that great chain of covenant weights. The fathers to the children to the grandchildren who are linked back to the fathers. All confessing the same faith, believing in the same God, living for the same purpose, trusting that God is faithful to a thousand generations. Let's heed that great call to covenant duty. Father, this morning we thank you for your word, which is so rich in its depths and proportions and its wisdom and instruction and guidance. Our hearts are full because of um, the substance and the weight and the glory and the grace and the call of your message. Pray that you would press this upon our hearts so that today we, we stand straddling two great horizons, the past and the future. And uh, we need to absorb the great lessons of the past, the great lessons of your word, and integrate them thoroughly in our life today in a meaningful and practical and real and true way so that they bear fruit tomorrow. Lord, uh, we trust that if we should walk by faith now, that you will grant the mercy, you will grant the grace, and you will grant the reward and the blessing. So we lift it up unto you. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, before.